Welcome to Module 16 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In these modules, we've now completed our discussion of procedural entitlements in administrative law. And we're about to shift to a discussion of what are known as substantive errors or judicial review on substantive grounds. Before we do that, however, it's useful to do a little stock taking by circling back to that seven steps approach to administrative law wisdom that we began this course with. And then I want to explain how substantive review fits into this discussion and how it operates somewhat differently than judicial review on procedural matters. So recall the seven steps. Recall that they're really divided into two categories. We have the three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power. And so first, to whom is the power delegated? Second, what is the nature of the power delegated? And third, how is the power to be exercised? And then we have that four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power. First, who exercises the control? Second, what procedure must be followed in seeking to control the exercise of delegated power? And third, on what grounds is control exercised? Finally, fourth, what relief can be granted? The three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power is about the administrative decision-maker themselves. It is all about the powers that they have. This is basically a more helpful embellishment of that show-me-the-power mantra. The four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power in comparison is really about what you do when you conclude that the power has not been exercised properly. It's about that judicial review function, subject to the existence of some administrative appeal, some statutory right of appeal in the statute governing the administrative decision-maker themselves. Now, in our modules, we skated very quickly over the first two questions of the three-question approach. Why? Because in both instances, one focused on the statute and looked, for example, for that first question, to whom is the power delegated? One looks to the statute to determine who it is that can exercise power under that statute. And then in a question two, our primary focus there, what is the nature of the power delegated, was on not only its content, what is it that the statute says the person can do, but also how much choice, how much discretion do they have in performing their function. It was really on question three that we needed to pause. Question three being, how is the power to be exercised? And we said there really were two subcategories here. What is the procedure to be followed in the exercise of power? So the procedural standards. And second, what substantive standards are to be used or observed in exercising the power, the substantive standards. Now, we said that to answer these questions, we had to focus on at least four sources, the statute, the common law, the constitution, and other statutes. And so, for example, the statute itself that gives powers to the delegate may also prescribe procedures that have to be followed. And so that statute may contain rules both on process and also rules on substance. That is, what is it that it can actually do? What sort of powers do they really have? In terms of the Constitution, in this course, we really focused on Section 7 of the Charter as a source of procedural obligations imposed on at least those delegates to whom Section 7 applies. In relation to other statutes, statutes external to the statute giving power to the delegate, well, there are provincial statutes that may govern procedures that delegates must observe in the exercise of their powers. And so in Ontario, the Statutory Powers Procedures Act but at the federal level, we focused on the Canadian Bill of Rights as a source of procedural obligations imposed on delegates. And then in relation to the common law, 
we started actually our discussion on procedural entitlements with a focus on the ancient concept of natural justice, now better known as procedural fairness, where it comes from, and then ultimately in relation to the common law, the Charter Section 7 and the Canadian Bill of Rights, we looked at the content of the procedural entitlements. What is it that delegates are supposed to observe in the exercise of their powers? Now, in relation to substantive standards, the second sub-question, we've said very little. We haven't examined this question. So let's recall, what do we mean by substantive standards? Well, basically, this is the what of the decision. What was the decision made? At what was the outcome of the decision? That's what we mean by substantive standards. And the rules that decide whether the what of the decision is proper or not are often about the preconditions or expectations about that power that are imposed via the statute. And so the statute or regulations will usually set out the scope of the power to be exercised, and they will specify any preconditions that must exist before the power can be exercised. And so you can talk about a discretion, for example, being fettered by the existence of certain prerequisites that must exist before that discretion is exercised. So again, it's important to read the statute thoroughly. Recall that I, in prior discussions, I I conveyed the image of this bucket of power that was filled by the legislature and that the delegate could not exceed the bucket in terms of the powers that they exercised. Or put another way, I gave you the metaphor of a slice of the power pie where the delegate is prescribed a piece of the power pie and that piece circumscribes exactly what it is that they can do. And so substantive review at its core is about making sure the delegate doesn't overflow that bucket or step outside its piece of the power pie. And most of that is about really the statute. And so an example, the statute says the minister may issue a security clearance under the Aeronautics Act for people who access the secure zone of the airport. Fine, that makes sense. But can the minister issue a security clearance under the Aeronautics Act for people who work in the secure areas of ships? Can the minister justify that what of their decision, that is the outcome of the decision, based on the Aeronautics Act? Well, that seems very unlikely. The minister would be overflowing their bucket of power or stepping outside their piece of the power pie. Were they to extend a power given to them for aviation purposes now to maritime decisions? But a footnote here. We can't just stop with that statute, in this case, the Aeronautics Act. There are other sources that may impose substantive limits. Of course, constitutional rules apply. You can't engage in exercises of power that violate the substantive rules in the charter by infringing persons' freedom of speech, for example. And we'll talk about how the courts grapple with the exercise of power by a delegate that may trench on a substantive charter right. More specifically, though, there's a broad common law doctrine about errors that one cannot make in the exercise of substantive decision-making. As part of their reviewing functions, courts have said that we will not allow you to abuse your discretion uh, and have also condemned certain misconstruals or errors of law or errors of fact and seen them as delegitimating decision-making by a delegate. Here, the what of the decision is reviewable where, for example, a decision is based on an error of fact or an error about what the law is. And so to allude back to the hypothetical involving the Aeronautics Act. I decline to give you a security clearance under the Aeronautics Act, I say, as the minister, because you are not the person you say you are. Well, let's say it turns out you are the person you say you are. The what of this decision, the outcome of this decision, the refusal of the security clearance, is built on an error of fact. 
And so if you look at how this works from the optics of the decision maker, that is the delegate, they know they must make a decision within their zone of jurisdiction, that is within their piece of the power pie, their bucket. And in the broadest sense of the word, when I use that term jurisdiction, that means that they have to meet applicable procedural and substantive standards. That's all I really mean in using jurisdiction in this context. And so how does this relate then to the four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power? Recall there who exercises the control. And we talked about exercising control through administrative appeals or through judicial review. And recall that we focused on the Federal Courts Act in our course as the example of judicial review that we were most concerned with. And what procedure must be followed in seeking to control the exercise of delegated power? And we talked about the Federal Courts Act and the Federal Court Rules. On what grounds is control exercised and what relief can be granted? In both instances, we talked about the Federal Courts Act. The four-question approach in our discussion so far has really been about, well, to whom do you turn in the event that you're unhappy with the decision of a delegate and what you do in order to challenge that decision of the delegate? So what is the link then between what we've been doing so far and discussing that three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power, where we've been focusing up to this point on procedural entitlements and very soon a conversation about substantive limitations? What is the link between that conversation and this four-question approach? Well, really, it's this third question about the grounds on which control is exercised by the reviewing body or on administrative appeals by the appellate body. Why? Because the clasp between the procedural and substantive errors that are the focus of our detailed analyses is really this concept of ground of review. That is the delegate's error that justifies a court intervening on judicial review. That's all we mean by ground for review. And so a violation of common law procedural fairness where it exists is a ground for review. Ditto. A violation of Section 7 of the Charter is a grounds for review. Ditto. A violation of the Canadian Bill of Rights, where it applies, is a grounds for review. So too, violating the things that we're about to talk about next, that is substantive standards, is a ground for review. But the discussion of substantive review is deeply affected by the role that courts envisage themselves playing in administrative law. And that's because courts have to decide how bad the error must be before they will intervene. And the answer to that question, how bad must the error be before the courts will intervene, has driven decades of confusing case law, ever-changing efforts by the courts to establish what is known as the standard of review. And before we wax on about standard of review, all it means is basically, how bad must the error be before a court thinks that grounds to intervene exist? And sometimes courts think they should be tender and forgiving, that they should show deference to administrative decision-making. Other times, not so much. We shall spend a module discussing the history of this endless back and forth on how much deference exists as part of the standard of review. But just to set that stage, for procedural errors, courts have not imposed an extra standard of review test or mostly not imposed, that's the dominant position, no extra standard of review test. They have not shown deference above and beyond the implicit deference that stems from that content depends on the context discussion that we engaged in when we were talking about really what these procedural entitlements really mean, that they vary in the context. And especially remember that fifth prong of the Baker test? There, there was some implicit deference to the decision on procedure taken by the delegate. 
But beyond that sort of content depends on the context sort of analysis, the dominant view is that there's no requirement that you engage in any kind of supplemental standard of review analysis. And that position was affirmed once again by the Supreme Court in 2019 in the Vavilov case. So that means you can just do the sort of analysis we've been doing in the procedural entitlement modules and you're done in terms of discussing the requirements for that ground of review, a ground of review predicated on procedural entitlements. But for substantive review, well, there, deference has been a huge consideration. And for some sorts of substantive errors, the courts have said, yes, deference. And for others, they have said, no deference. And then where the court has said, yes, deference, the courts have had to figure out what that means. And both the tests for when the courts will extend deference and what that deference means have changed dramatically over time. Basically, every 10 to 15 years or so, the Supreme Court totally renovates its standard of review jurisprudence. And so in administrative law, you must be very, very, very careful not to rely on older case law because it is wrong every 10 to 15 years. It has limited shelf life. It's replaced by a new iteration of the standard of review test. As I record this, the Supreme Court of Canada's current substantive review approach dates from 2019 and the Vavilov case. And I'm going to treat Vavilov as a bright line. In substantive review, there is, in my view, very little point in worrying about the tests that preceded Vavilov. Still, since the Supreme Court seems always to be in dialogue with its past self, it is useful to have some sense of where Vavilov came from, what it's responding to, before we dive into its details. And so in the next module, I'll provide you with a short history of the long and immensely painful case law on standards of review in substantive judicial review. This ends module 16.